Coming up on this episode of The Courage to Change. Sponsored by Lion Rock Recovery. When I co-created Sober Force and we had this community that grew to 500 people in five months and people were saying for the first time that they were sober, you know, and these are people who had like 10, 15 years of sobriety who had never come out of the sobriety closet before. They'd always been in secret about it. And what that did was it showed a whole bunch of other people, this is what a recovering alcoholic or someone with substance use disorder and long-term recovery looks like. It looks like a leader. It looks like a C-suite member. It looks like, right? That's the breaking of the stigmas. You know, and I respect when people want to stay anonymous. I really do. And I also really want to encourage anyone who does hear this, who hasn't been out loud with it, to ask yourself, like, what would it feel like for you if you just claimed it? And who could you potentially be helping if you did? Hello, beautiful people. Welcome to the Courage to Change a Recovery Podcast. My name is Ashley Loeb Blassingame, and I am your host. Today, we have the amazing Marin Nelson. Marin loved drinking from the moment she began. It was an immediate connection that she'd been searching for. Early on, she found herself having panic attacks and being stuck in the destructive cycles of use. She began searching for all kinds of cures for her health concerns. She became a vegan. She tried volunteering. She tried new groups and clubs and health kicks, but never considered the alcohol to be the root of her problems. She eventually found recovery that worked for her after a long road of failed attempts. And as her recovery and her career grew, she began to feel the desire to share her recovery. She knew there were other people in her workplace community that were struggling with the same problems, but no organized community existed. This need was the birth of Sober Force. In her role at Salesforce, she created an open group for for people to meet and share their sobriety out loud. What started small grew to 500 members in a matter of months. Today, she works to combat the stigma people face in the workplace and to educate companies about the need to create a more supportive environment for their employees struggling with substances. I just love this woman. You'll hear me talk about it in the episode. I don't want to belabor the point, but... She's amazing. And what she did at Salesforce creating Sober Force is a really big deal because it was not being done. And the fact that it caught on so quickly is a message to all the employers out there that we are a large group of people. We are in your workforce and it is important to support us. Marin's story tells us so much about the different ways that alcoholism can appear in people's lives and what their road to recovery can look like. I hope you enjoy Marin. She's amazing. Check out Sober Force. Without further ado, I give you Marin Nelson. Let's do this. You're listening to The Courage to Change, a recovery podcast. We're a community of recovering people who have overcome the odds and found the courage to change. Each week, we share stories of recovery from substance abuse, eating disorders, grief and loss, childhood trauma, and other life-changing experiences. Come join us no matter where you are on your recovery journey. Thank you so much for being here, Marin. Thank you for having me. It's so good to be here chatting with you. Very exciting. Okay, so I think we're the same class of sobriety. 
What is your sobriety date? May 8th, 2005. 2005. Okay. Okay. I'm 06. Close. Okay. It's been a long time. We're old enough to have that much time. It's crazy. (laughs) That's what I think. It's really crazy. How do we get that old? (laughs) And people also look at you. Do you get this where people look at you like, wait, how do you have that much? They start to do math. I love when they can't figure that out. Are you kidding me? As opposed to just like, well, of course she has that much time. Look at her. (laughs) Yeah, fair, fair. I guess. Yeah. I should should enjoy that (laughs) while it lasts. (laughs) <laughs> exactly. I got sober when I was born. Okay, great. Yeah, correct. So tell me a little bit about your background, what your life, what where you grew up, what your family of origin was like. So I grew up in St. Paul, Minnesota. I live outside of there, I live about 30 minutes outside now on a farm, which is not something I ever pictured for myself growing up. I always thought like, I'm going to run away. I lived in New York for a while. Anyways, now I'm on a farm. So I grew up youngest of three parents, happily married for 51 years up until my mom passed away, sadly, three years ago from pancreatic cancer. And she and my dad had been high school sweethearts and really, truly like in love all the way to the end, which is a pretty amazing model to have. You know, there's nothing like there's no big profound moment. I mean, like, yes, and sexual trauma is one of them. And I just think it's important to name that because I think a lot of people who are in recovery, especially women in recovery, although definitely men as well, have experienced sexual trauma. And that for me was a coping mechanism. Not that I had conscious awareness of that when I started drinking at 14, but was definitely a way to self-medicate anxiety that I didn't understand the source of. And so my dad, I grew up with a dad who was in recovery. My dad got sober when I was seven. He kind of was like playing around with sobriety through his own methods, basically, up until then. So I never, I don't have any memories of my dad being drunk. Like he basically had stopped drinking when my brother was born, who was seven years older than me. And it was when I was seven that he started in 12-step program and has been an active member since. And my uncles also were both sober. They got sober before my dad. So I had a really clear example growing up of what life in recovery looked like and what your life could be and your community could be when you're a part of a 12-step program. Those friends would show up at a Thanksgiving dinner if they didn't have somewhere to go for Thanksgiving, or we would go volunteer together with his home group at a soup kitchen. But I also still was like, oh, it's like the old white man's program. (laughs) So I didn't grow up thinking like that will be mine. I know not not far off from the truth still today. And I think that's just and then unfortunately, that's one of the short I'd say that's one of the shortcomings is like who tends to be drawn into those groups and who those groups um, well are in theory. Anyways, I could go off on a whole tangent about that. Like in theory is open to everyone. But like when you look around the rooms, you tend to see primarily like in my experience, at least older white faces. But what I'm grateful for is that I had a very clear example of what another option was. And that saved me from what I'm sure would have been many more years of pain and alcoholic drinking is that I knew like in my bones that there was another pathway from the time I started drinking at 14. What did your drinking look like when it started? The classiest, like Zima in a parking lot with some menthol cigarettes. I mean, obviously, like so classy. Uh, 1990s. Zimas and the menthols. Zimas. Ugh. Just the greatest combination. And then maybe some Tupac or some sort of- Oh, for sure Tupac, Biggie. Yeah. Listen, I was very hard. Okay. 14. Very hard. (laughs) Going to a private school. (laughs) Very (laughs) Very hard. Oh my God, it's embarrassing. So drinking looked like hanging out with older kids, whoever had a friend that had a fake ID. I do remember my first drink and it was a Zima and it was in a parking lot. And I was like, oh, this is, this is good. Like the hamster on the wheel stopped running is how it felt for me. And I was not so 
obsessively self-conscious and insecure while I was drinking. So it was this relief from this like overwhelming amount of anxiety that I just lived with. I mean, I remember having panic attacks when I was like seven. It just like breaks my heart for that little self that didn't knew that something was wrong and didn't feel safe enough to ask for help with it, but like was very aware that I was, I felt different and like I wasn't processing how I should be. You know, it's like, I just remember this moment of like terror while having a panic attack and not though, even though I had very loving parents, like not feeling like I could, it's like, I already knew the shame and stigma of this thing that I didn't feel safe enough saying it anyway. So yeah, so it quieted that down. It probably honestly drinking probably saved my life from the depression and the anxiety as a teenager. Like in some ways it probably saved my life until it really didn't until it was really not saving my life. So this is something I experienced sexual trauma early on as well. And, you know, I was five. So a lot of times when I talk to people about that, they're like, well, do you think that that caused you? Could you have possibly had a different path? And the answer for me, knowing me and having watched my brain now for 37 years is no. But like, I really do think I came out this way. And then that was just another thing to add on like to the issues I was going to have to face. But do you think that your sexual trauma being so young was, you know, how do you factor that in when you think about your alcoholism and your your trajectory? How do you factor it in? That's a really good question. One, I don't think I'll ever have the answer of like, is there some perfect formula that could have been given to me that would have led to a different outcome? Two, I wouldn't wish anything different because like my 12-step community, it feels like such a gift to me that I have a place I can go no matter where I am in the world. And I mean that quite literally, like traveling to England to see my sister and going to meetings there and like walking down the street. And she's like, what the heck? You like know more people than I do. I'm like waving to people on the streets of Brighton, England, because I have been going to, you know, it's like, it has been like such a gift in life to be part of this group and to have a space where you can just come and be your full self and be loved and embraced and know that you are in community with like-minded people who you would normally never connect with probably because we come from different walks of life, right? So all that to say, I don't, I think like you, I think I came into this world kind of wired and I believe we come into the world who we are. And I think this is one part of it. I think my brain is just set up this way. And I know from the way I used sugar as a kid, there was no way that I was going to have a a healthy relationship with alcohol. I used to go to like great lengths (laughs) to get sugar. Like I used to climb up to precarious positions where my mom had like hidden the sugar (laughs) and pull down like, and I made a mix. I remember this time, this is like my first moment of shame that I can remember is that I pulled down like white sugar, brown sugar, maple syrup, honey, peanut butter, because a little protein is good. Like you want to balance it with yeah, a touch yeah, of protein. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Blood Mix sugar, it baby. all up. <laughs> I was with my friend Caroline and I'm like, let's go eat this. Like, let's do it. Went and hid under the deck, of course, because like you need to hide when you eat something like this. Okay. It's just like setting the groove, like the grooves in the brain were just being established. Totally. Totally. Who doesn't do that under the deck? Who doesn't, who doesn't hide under the deck with their sugar? With a, with a concoction of every type of glucose you can find. Fructose, glucose. Yeah. Okay. All right. So gross. Okay. So inhaled a full cup's worth of this. Like we didn't make a small amount. It was like a full cup. Was there a liquid involved? They were said that was a syrup. Syrup. Syrup was liquid. Yeah. You need uh, to have uh, a liquid. Okay. Yeah. And she and I just inhaled this whole thing, hit all the evidence, didn't get caught. And she was like, I feel so sick. I'm like, me too. <laughs> Let's do it again tomorrow. 
And the next day I'm like, let's make our concoction because that's what we call them concoctions. And she's looked at me like horrified, like, how could you want to eat that again? And I remember feeling like shame in that moment of like, oh, I think something's different about me that I want this and she's repulsed. Oh, Mari, and I felt so sick, sad that I we weren't it. together because there would have been no shame in our game. Zero shame. I would have concocted with you every day. Oh, God. <laughs> oh, God, help us. Seriously, we would have been walking into meetings at like 10. <laughs> Honestly. So yeah. So is it surprising that when I first drank alcohol, I was like, oh, where have you been, best friend? Where have you been hiding? <laughs> I remember when I, which I was embarrassingly late in the game, but when I realized that alcohol metabolizes into sugar and I was like, oh, oh, oh that's, it's all coming together. It's all coming together. Yeah. It's all connecting. Yeah. I still have a problem with sugar. Yeah. Same. Full ownership of that. And I'm like, you know what? It's my advice. Okay. It's my one vice. I got to tell you in a weird way, sugar has kept me sober because my behavior around it has been so like the things I'll do and the behaviors are so alcoholic. There isn't a world in which I can plause, like there's no deniability of my alcoholism, even though I haven't taken a drink in almost 18 years. My behavior there reminds me that my alcoholism is alive and well. And I actually am genuinely grateful for it because otherwise I feel like I could be like, well, I was 19 and doesn't everybody shoot heroin at 19? You know, that kind of thing. The answer is no for those of you listening. <laughs> <laughs> the answer is no, not everyone does. And please don't. Yes. please. And please don't. And if my children are listening, please don't. Definitely don't. Yes. Not the heroin it used to be. Exactly. It really isn't though. Exactly. That's a, I mean, it's actually horrifying right now. And it's horrifying the amount of things that, yeah, that when we were younger, like there, I don't remember there being like unexpected other drugs in the drugs you thought you were taking. Oh, there was certainly no opiates in your uppers. Thank you. But seriously. Not a thing. The number of people that we have lost in our community to fentanyl in the last year is horrifying. Horrifying. And I just say to my nephews and my stepsons, like, do not, like, if you're going to smoke weed, get it from a dispensary, period, full stop. Do not buy anything off the street. Do not take any drug you think is like whatever you think it oh, is. Including pills. Especially pills, because those are the stories that are coming back to me from community members who are like, I lost my 16 year old who thought she was taking something for ADHD and it was fentanyl. It's just like, but it's like, but then the expectation of teenage brains to like, I know, I know. understand consequence and fatality is like a big ask of a young brain. It is. And that's, that's one. And we can talk about this, but I'll just plug it here, which is I have been encouraging families, you know, we used to put condoms everywhere and have them out and whatever. And I've been encouraging people, please go to dose test, D-O-S-E test.com and buy like cheap fentanyl tests. If you're going to use recreational drugs, please test your drugs. Please test them. And, and I think a lot of parents are like, I'm sorry, what? You know, you want me to, and I'm like, you know what? This is an easy, I would rather have to deal with their addiction than have to deal with their burial. So thank you. And why do we not have this in every school? It does. You're right. It feels just like fighting at schools to have free condoms available. And like when you and I were growing up, it was abstinence only movement. Thank you to Bush, you know, and my mom was fighting hard against that in her career. And like- I'm proud it worked so well for us, you know? Yeah. I mean, all the data, because who cares about data, I guess, in science, it shows that actually sex education, comprehensive sex education delays onset of losing your virginity and reduces STDs. All of the facts are clear that like when you arm kids with more information and accurate information, 
then they actually make safer, better choices for themselves. And I'm so glad you compared it to free condoms because it feels like the exact same thing. And I'm like, every high school needs to have Narcan readily available or free. Like have it for kids to take to the party because it's not going to help you when it's locked in the nurse's office. Like so we need to have these things more freely available and to fentanyl our testing. Everything should be fentanyl, fentanyl testing. Testing. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And and maybe teach kids how to do it. They remember when they taught I had to go yeah, up. How to put, put a condom on. And I was I felt squeeze like, the tip. Get the air out. Get the air out. I was like, first of all, this feels like God right now. Being like, bitch, use a condom. But see, but did it work? It worked for me. No! That information worked for me. No, lady, it didn't work. Well, I had a mom who has taught sex education. So it was like drilled into me. Like, if you get near a penis, you'll be pregnant. So my sister and I were very safe. (laughs) Oh, good, good. I'm glad. I'm glad. I'm glad. That makes me happy for you. No, that didn't work. None of it worked on me. None of, not, not the drug program, not the abstinence program, not the food pyramid. None of it. (laughs) None of it. pyramid. None of it, none of it made its way in. <laughs> no, it's just it's just a heavy block. Just, I like it. It's like Teflon, just bounced yeah, right off. Just exactly. Whoop, right off. But then the sobriety stuck. That's what's amazing about your stories. You're like, none of that's eventually the Yeah, but so that's like gift of desperation, right? And when we talk about hitting a bottom, right? What we're really talking about is getting to the gift of desperation. Whatever that looks like, whatever that bottom looks like is, you know, bottom is when you stop digging. And for me, it took me a lot to get to that, but I got there. So what did it look like for you to get to your your desperation, your will or willingness to change? So I definitely tried everything but not drinking to solve my problem. So I tried being a vegan. Oh, that was the first. Oh, it wasn't the first step. No, first step was volunteering. I tried volunteering. Oh my gosh, I never tried that. I wonder if it would have worked. But it didn't work. I would I just, just come home you. and you get really so high and drunk. Sweet. You volunteered to get out of your alcoholism. I, volunteered. I love yeah, well, that about you. You know, and then raced home to get high. But yeah, I tried volunteering. I tried hot yoga. Bikram Yoga, big practitioner. I'm sure they loved me and there with the booze just sweating from my pores. Sweat that out. Okay, got it. Just sweat it out before you go consume more. I tried being, I don't think like I ever went full vegan. I think I tried eliminating pork from my diet. I think I took pork out maybe. Maybe beef? Honey, that's and not I think vegan I called, at all. <laughs> it's, listen, I was in Wisconsin. It's, a, it's as close as you're going to get in Wisconsin. You're right. Never mind. I take it back. You were in Wisconsin. That's fully vegan. Got it. Full vegan. It's yep. <laughs> right there. Oh my God. Half this podcast is just us laughing. <laughs> Stupid jokes. Okay. I tried being a lesbian. Yes. That did nothing for my alcoholism. Yeah. No, that was my last stop on the train, right? Yeah. I was like, I think men are the problem. I think that's actually why I'm a mess. I think it's men. And I think I'm going to go to a lesbian bar, <laughs> find a nice girlfriend. She took me out. We started drinking, I think at like 11 a.m., and I was like, this, I think this is the solution to like my life's problems. I think this is the recipe that I needed. Much like the concoction I made as a five-year-old, this feels like the right. And then I woke up in the morning and I was like, yep, yeah, nope, nope, that wasn't it. That's not my answer. She actually got sober two months after I did. So I think her trying to date a straight girl maybe was her last stop too. We helped each other. So I was just really, so I had a job. I worked in nonprofit healthcare at the time. I had my rent paid. I just turned 24. So my birthday's May 5th. So that year is 555. And I was like, I feel like this carries like significant spiritual meaning. Like I might be the second coming. I should probably look into this. 100%. So I looked it up. like the secret, <laughs> all the things. What's the meaning of someone? What's the power of someone who has a birthday on 555? And I found this random website that said 
People on everyone has a wish day outside of their birthday. And those of you born on May 5th, your wish day is May 8th. And you need to wish for clarity because your life is on a downward spiral, right? And you need clarity. And I was like, holy moly. I could not tell you where this website is today. But I was like, okay, this feels this feels like a message. <laughs> and I went out on my birthday and got really drunk and called in sick. Actually, I think I pre-planned to take the day off. And I felt like that was very responsible of me. Like I knew I was going to be really hungover. So I like clarity. took a personal day off on May 6th. Clarity. You had the clarity to take the day off. Went out on the 7th. Was pl- like, I'm not going to drink. I'm not going to drink. I'm not going to drink. And then of course drank because there's, you know, alcohol being served at the event. So like, obviously I'm going to drink. Be rude not to. And woke up horribly hungover and full of shame and full of terror. Honestly, how I felt was like terrified. It was this, it was this moment of clarity of like, I'm going to die. Like I'm literally going to get myself in a situation where I am going to be killed or I'm going to die. And I, yeah, that's the word terror. And I went into the kitchen and I remember exactly where I was standing in my kitchen in Brooklyn. And I was like, oh, it's May 8th. And I closed my eyes and I was like, I need clarity. And I immediately saw this vision of me at a crossroads. It still gives me goosebumps. And my dad and my uncles were at the end of one. And my family member who's still an active alcoholic was on the other. And I heard very clearly, pick your path. You can either be an active alcoholic or you can be a sober alcoholic. Like, which one are you choosing? And, you know, it was this moment where neither choice felt like an easy choice. It was like, okay, so... So one, I give up my best friend alcohol, and that's terrifying because then what? I have a giant gaping hole in myself, and what do I do? The other path, I'm going to have no friends or family who want to be around me. No, I'm going to lose everything. I'm going to be so sick. I'm going to continue in the suffering until the bitter end. Like That f- sounds horrible. And thank God, I it really was a moment of grace that like I felt like I need to call my parents right now while I'm in this moment of clarity and say I need help because I can't, I can't keep doing this. And so it was Mother's Day and I called and I was like, hi, hey, hi, happy Mother's Day. I think I have a drinking problem. I was like, I'm going to hand the phone to your father because he knows how to talk to you about that. Because my dad's the one who's in recovery. My mom's like, I don't know what to do with this. I love you. Here's your father. (laughs) So the best Mother's Day call. I mean, honestly, it is, you know, it's like there's beauty in it, but oh, so perfect. They're like at brunch. Hey, are you eating eggs? Okay. Hi. I need help. So my dad was like, okay, so here's what you're going to do. You're going to go find a meeting. You're going to call your cousin who lives in New York, who's also sober. Ask him to take you to a meeting. Don't drink. Call me later. And so I did that. And I met my cousin the next day. He was my only family member living in New York. And he, I think he had like five years sober at the time or three years. So we're now the next generation of sobriety in the family. And I remember it was at First Avenue and First Street in New York. And I see him standing there waving, smiling. And I wanted to run. I was like, can I turn? Can I turn and run? What happens if I turn and run? It was like, nope, I, nope, I'm got to do this now. Now I've said it out loud. I can't take it back. I got to go in. And I remember sitting in that first meeting and thinking like, someone must be stealing money from the basket. There's no way that no one's taking this money out of the basket. So I was watching everyone's hands, like someone's taking the money. No one took the money. My next thought was like, what's wrong with these people that they're so happy? Like they should be really upset that they're in here. Like what's wrong with you? And my third thought was, I don't actually think I'm uniquely broken. I think I maybe I'm just an alcoholic. And maybe I can just do what these people are saying. And like, I didn't trust their laughter or their happiness, but I was intrigued by it. And I, yeah, I was intrigued by it. And I was intrigued by the honesty and the shares and the stories. 
I'd never been somewhere where people had been so honest. And I was like, what is this? <laughs> I want I want more of this. This is fascinating to me. I want to hear more of this. So I'm really lucky that it worked for me because I recognize it definitely doesn't work for everyone. I'm really lucky it worked for me. It was also the example I had in my family of like what people did to stay sober. So I just did it. And I just like did what people told me to do because I didn't have any, there was no other option really 18 years ago. There's a lot more pathways now. There really wasn't then. No, there was not. Certainly none that were being offered readily. So I did that. And I was lucky that I was in Brooklyn because literally I'd go to meetings with like 220 something year olds. And it taught me how to be in life without alcohol. So like I learned how to go out dancing because I sponsored a bunch of DJs. And so I'd hang out in their booth with them and get them Red Bulls and stay up till 4am and we do it sober together. And like that was pretty profound, actually, because when I moved back to Minnesota, I definitely came across quite a few people who like didn't feel safe going into those spaces. And I respect that. But like, it made, it's like I didn't realize the gift I was being given. Of, it was this sober bubble around me of people, of literally human bodies that made it okay for me to walk into these spaces that before had been sources of just like a ton of shame and horrible situations. And I got to reframe what it meant to like go out and go to a restaurant and go to go out dancing and like go to a comedy show and do it all sober because I was surrounded by all these sober people doing it with me. Because here's the thing, like when I, and it almost made me cry because when I was drinking, I wasn't in community with anyone and I definitely was not in community with myself. I was just numb and sick and isolated and I maybe looked like I was okay because I had the friends around me and I had the boyfriend and I had the job, but I was in total darkness alone. So that's an, another piece that this part, our stories differ, which is that your life looked really together. And I wanted to die. Do you think there are a lot of people out there or do you talk to a lot, having worked in corporate America, having worked that have their shit together? Like, I think it's pretty common for people to want to die and have their shit together because they have a drinking problem. A hundred percent. And that's the people I want to try to reach. Because that's where I started doing this work when I was at Salesforce and co-creating a group called Soberforce was for the sick and suffering employee who was sober curious or sober but in isolation with it, didn't feel like they could share it, didn't have community in the workplace around it because of the stigma and the shame, right? So like here we are, like this huge foundational part of who I am and there's no space for me to bring it into the workplace. And they're telling me bring your whole self to work, but there's no conversation and there's endless virtual wine tastings and like and this isn't to say like Salesforce wasn't any better or worse. In fact, they're better in a lot of ways because they created a framework and a discussion and a safety to have this conversation. There are a lot of companies where it would just not be safe. So I think they're further ahead in that regard. But like there still wasn't a group for us. And we needed to form that group because we needed to show other people that like it was OK to ask for help before you've lost everything. So I'm super motivated to reach the person who is employed, has their family and is drinking problematically. And I want to reach them before they've lost it all, before they need to go to inpatient. For me, and this isn't a judgment on using inpatient or not, for me, I didn't need inpatient or outpatient, but I did need a daily treatment, which for me was using meetings to stay sober. There are more me's out there. There's 47 million people right now with substance use disorder and 70% of them is a giant number. 70% of 47 million, and this is the U.S. Department of Labor, Health and Human Services, one of them provides the stat, are fully employed. 
They're literally in the workforce and we're not having a discussion in the workplace and we default to I'll call based events all the time. And so, yeah, I think there's a ton of people. I know there are. The stats show that there are a ton of people who are employed who are suffering. I want to paint a picture, maybe trigger some like, oh, that is me or oh, of people who are like, oh, I'm just stressed. Oh, I'm just depressed. Oh, but I do Ironmans. I'm okay. Or like, what does it look like behind the scenes for the people who have it all together? What can problematic drinking look like for those people? I mean, I can speak from my own experience, which is that like I started planning my drink and when I could start drinking during the workday. I started thinking about and obsessing on where am I getting my alcohol? What alcohol am I getting? Where am I drinking? Am I going out with friends? Do I need to find people to go out with me? Am I drinking at home by myself? What time do I need to start by? How much will I need? When will I need to stop by to be able to get up and go to work? The amount of mental space that it took was not normal. It's not how normal people, and when I say normal, I mean people who have a normal relationship with alcohol. It's not how they think or or drink. And I would put endless energy into that. And then I'd go to the liquor store and I wouldn't want to buy the cheapest wine because then that'd be really obvious that I had a problem. And I definitely didn't want to get the most expensive wine because that's not what I care about. I just care to get drunk. And so I'd find myself in the wine store obsessing over which bottle can I get that won't signal to the cashier that I have a problem. As if the cashier at the wine store... Yeah, doesn't know. I'm worried about my drinking. They probably would love if I had a substance use disorder. (laughs) I shouldn't say that. There's probably some really lovely wine shop people who don't want that. But it's like, that's the kind of obsession I was doing. I thought everyone was paying attention. I was cognizant of like, if I went out drinking with this group, then like, I wouldn't go drinking with them for another week because I didn't want those friends to think I had a problem. So then I had another group of friends over here that I drink with. And then these friends who drink worse than me, so I could really get drunk with that. Like the planning... The fact that if I drank a glass of wine at dinner, I patted myself on the back and celebrated that, even though I was furious that I wasn't drinking more and I had to rush home and get under the covers and go to sleep because my obsession was so great. But like, I did it. So see, I don't have a problem. Like, I just had one glass of wine, but I was like furious about it. Before it completely took over, what did it look like in terms – because, you know, there are people, the weekend warriors, or they're like, oh, I don't drink that often, but when I do drink, I say things I shouldn't, or like their mental obsession isn't quite as daily. What What is that? I would say the daily is a yet. So it's a chronic progressive disease. So if it's not there today, it will get there. So I just start with that. If you have a drinking problem, if there is addiction going on, substance use disorder going on, it's going to just keep getting worse. So there's no happy ending on this one. Yeah. I mean, I took the quiz when I was a freshman in college. I think Hazelden had a quiz about like you're drinking the amount you consume. And I basically scored perfectly on it. It was the best grade I got (laughs) freshman year. It was like, you drink more than 99.9% of the population. You should seek help. And I was like, oh, whatever. They just want my money. I'm in a sorority. I go to Madison. It's a Big Ten school. Like, slammed my laptop yeah. shut. Who the but fuck it, made this? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Who, yeah. You just want my money. You're full of it. But it planted a seed in me of like, oh, shit. And I had the oh, shit when I was 14. And I'd thrown this epic party at my house. And my mom's flight didn't land. And it turned around and came back because of a snowstorm, which like, when does that ever happen? It was like literally landing and then pulled back up and oh. turned back around and came back. 
And I had so many consequences. Like, so, I had to join. I had to, okay, you wonder why I did volunteering to try to quit drinking? This actually, I just made this connection myself. My mom made me join the volunteer team, like the volunteer group at high school as a consequence. I had to join choir as a consequence. Yeah, but it didn't work. No. And I was obsessing over when could I get drunk again? Like, I had all the consequences. I got kicked off the gymnastics team and I was like a really good gymnast and was going to go to like something like it was like, I don't know if it was state qualification, but like it was like the peak of my gymnastics. And I was like, whatever. I wouldn't have done it any different. I wouldn't have given up that party. So like that, all those moments of I've had a consequence. I've done something that I'm ashamed of. I've said something I regret. I don't remember what I said, but someone's pissed at me. I didn't show up for the test clear headed because I drank all night. All these consequences that I knew in my gut, I think I'm in trouble. I think I have this family disease that I've been hearing about, but I'm not willing to give it up. So for me, like my bottom was really feeling the whole line of like sick and tired of being sick and tired. I was so exhausted by it that I really felt like I like was waving the white flag coming in because I'm like, I can't do this anymore. Yeah, probably would have been a path towards suicide. And unfortunately, that is a path that a lot of people go. And the thing is, like, just stopping drinking isn't like the full solution either, as you know. It then meant a whole bunch of therapy that I did and treating my anxiety disorder in the appropriate way and getting enough sleep and drinking water and having a, you know what I mean? It's like all of the things that I require to be clear headed and grounded were things I had to learn in sobriety. Yeah. I, I mean, many of us have the joke, like, do you know what it takes for me to be a normal person? Because it's a whole lot. I feel like one of those people in, in the Men in Black movie where I'm like an alien, like just kind of like trying to blend in because it does, it takes a lot of work. But I also end up seeing that that work pays off. And it's something that even the people who don't have alcoholism or some sort of substance use disorder, they honestly could benefit from it. And many times my life has more meaning and more progress than those who don't have alcoholism at all. Totally. To go back to your original question of like, the person who's listening is trying to evaluate. I think if you're having any questions about it, then like, what's the harm in removing it for at least a certain period of time? Right, right. And observing how you feel during that time, how much are you craving it? How much are you thinking about it? Or how clear-headed and amazing do you feel? How well are you sleeping? How present are you for your family and for your friends and for yourself? Because I definitely have friends who are, I'd say, sober curious. And I almost think it can be harder when you haven't lost everything in some regard because it's really hard to admit defeat around a substance. And like, let's be real. I was having a conversation earlier with a woman who's sober and in corporate America and very senior in her career. And she's like, I got addicted to an addictive substance. It did what it was supposed to do on my brain. So like, why do we feel like that's a failure? Like it literally is created to create addiction. But it's just how much suffering are you willing to take? That's what that's what always is painful to watch when you see friends who are like, I'm trying again. I'm not willing to go to AA, which, okay, there are many pathways. The people I see who recover and sustain recovery have a community somewhere. Yes, agree. 100%. So I think community is critical. And what I mean by that is other people who are also sober, because I think it's just really hard to do it alone. And how and it feels like you're missing out. Like there's so much beauty in watching other people recover. I still am learning when I hear people talk about their journeys. You know, the only advice I offer is like, just do a lot of journaling of like reflect in a really honest appraisal. What does my life look like with it? What does my life look like without it? What were the consequences of it? And then to ask. So then when they start saying like, well, maybe I can. I'm like, is it worth it for like the pain that you had? I just feel like if you weren't someone with substance use disorder, like, would you be willing to 
take what feels like a loaded gun back into your house for what? Do you know what I mean? It's like, how good can a glass of wine be? I think it's what it represents for people. You know, I think there's a lot that comes, what I've observed watching people who have very different experiences than mine is that there's so much wrapped up in alcohol that I don't relate to, honestly, because I got sober at 19 and my using looked very different. And so when I watch people struggle, there's a lot of emotion for people wrapped up in alcohols and taste like that I never experienced. And so I see that because I I don't understand it. One of the things that I noticed, it is how I notice when I have a maladaptive, we'll just call it maladaptive relationship to something is if my brain says, well, if I don't have this, I'll never be happy again. So if it says it about a relationship, if it says like, if I give up sugar, well, how am I going to be happy again? I have some sort of relationship to the thing. And if it's, if my brain tells me I'm not going to be able to be happy without this thing, then that is a ding, 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 start questioning that. And without the reason I found that is because I really thought when I stopped drinking, like, well, I'll never be happy again. I'll never have fun again. My life is just going to be terrible, but I have to stop drinking. Those are the types of messages that an addictive brain is able to give in those moments. And I think so many people, they really don't think that they're ever going to be able to enjoy anything, that they're ever going to be able to have community or they're ever going to be able to go to a work event or any. I mean, so many of the work events, there's so much alcohol and they're afraid that someone's going to notice they stopped drinking and then they're going to comment about that. And so, like you said, the importance of having community is that other people walk you through how to do those things without alcohol, how to get through this life in a different way. Here's the experience I can share is that being sober never cost me a promotion. In fact, if I was still drinking, there's no way I would have been as productive and successful in my career as I have been. No one ever cared that I wasn't drinking at an event as long as I wasn't taking their alcohol away from them. They could care less what was in my hand. The only people who ever really drilled me were people who probably had a drinking problem themselves. And then I would take a ton of compassion to the conversation because I was that person too who was drinking, asking someone who's sober how they were even doing it because I didn't understand how could they could not. And I think the other piece that's really important and powerful in this is like giving the recovery community who are in the workplace permission to recover out loud because there's a lot of also empowerment in that for myself where I felt like I really was for the first time living my whole self out loud in a way that benefited the workplace when I co-created Soberforce and we had this community that grew to 500 people in five months and people were saying for the first time that they were sober. And they felt like, you know, and these are people who had like 10, 15 years of sobriety who had never come out of the sobriety closet before. They'd always been in secret about it. And what that did was it showed a whole bunch of other people, this is what a recovering alcoholic or someone with substance use disorder and long-term recovery looks like. It looks like a leader. It looks like a C-suite member. It looks like, right? That's the breaking of the stigma is like, you know, and I respect when people want to stay anonymous. I really do. And I also really want to encourage anyone who does hear this, who hasn't been out loud with it to ask yourself, like, what would it feel like for you if you just claimed it? And who could you potentially be helping if you did? Because the number of people who got sober through that group or, or, you know, would go on to like find recovery pathways, but like were members of that community would say, I didn't think I could be sober and have a career in sales. 
And here I was as like a sales leader at this organization saying my whole career has been sober. So representation matters. Sharing our personal stories matter. They have impact more than anything else, more than any academic literature that's abstract. There's so much power in our sharing our stories with each other because then people can say, okay, so now how do I go through this like customer event and this customer dinner where wine's going to be served? You need to have people who you can ask those stories of who have lived those experiences, who can tell you how they did it. Because, you know, when I look at like who's in my meeting, like, you know, I think I have like one good friend who's in corporate America also like in, you know, so I also need a community of people who are working in similar settings as me to talk through how we walk through these different experiences and stay sober. Stay tuned to hear more in just a moment. Hey, everybody, just want to jump in here and let you know about Lion Rock Recovery's specialized program for nurses who are struggling with alcohol use or substance use disorder or are just sober curious. We currently have a specialized program that works with nurses' trauma, nurses' scheduling, and even the importance of anonymity. For more information, go to lionrockrecovery.com, check out programs, specialized recovery programs, and there you will find our nurses' program. You can also go to lionrockrecovery.com and chat with us or call us at 800-258-6550 to find out more. How many people did you think you were going to get for Sober Force? I had like no idea. I mean, we were like, if we have one person, this whole thing is worth it, was was our mindset. 505 months was not even. No, not even remotely on the radar. Were you shocked to find people you knew? I loved it. Oh my God. And the people that I didn't know, because it's a 75,000 person company. So it's also like, it can be really hard to find your own community in a workplace that big. And especially when we are all remote and not in an office. And I've worked remote for 20 years. Like when since I moved back to Minnesota, I've worked for companies that are on either coast. I've never had an office I go into, except for when I travel. And so like finding your people and finding community just in general is tough. So it created this huge community for me of people who I were in different departments and I was never going to work with, but we're colleagues, right? We're now people who work for the same company and we have this shared connection. It was so profound. And just incredible to watch people just connect and like be so brave in sharing their stories. I mean, this was a public Slack channel we hosted this on. People are sharing their truth out loud for potentially all 75,000 people, including the CEO to see. And there was this like fearlessness that came from the sheer number of people who are in this group. And it was using, you know, position of power for good because we had, we were in executive, you know, leadership positions. Like it gave me permission perhaps to be a bit more bold than I would have felt earlier in my career. I felt more protected. Do you think that people, the longer that people were sober, the more comfortable about when I think of coming out in the workforce, I feel like if I'm two months sober, I probably am not going to be as comfortable coming out and telling everybody, hey, I'm two months sober as I am if I'm five years sober. So actually the opposite. Interesting. Really? So actually there was a ton of people who were sober for a really long time and who would message me on the side and say, hey, I just want you to know I'm cheering you on from the sidelines. I'm 12 years sober. I'm 15 years sober. I'm 20 years sober. But I'm not someone who's public about my sobriety. So I'm not joining the group, but I'm really supportive and encouraging of the work you're doing. So like, keep going, but I'm not joining. <laughs> really? And then there are people who are like, I'm 45 days sober. I'm three months sober. I just got back from treatment. And then we were getting 
cheerlead it on. Like, great work. Keep it up. Like, here's my number. Hey, anyone going to the San Francisco office? Like, let's meet for coffee. And then you'd have people join who are like, I don't drink for religious reasons. Can I join this group? We're like, absolutely. I don't drink for health reasons. Can I join this group? Yeah, because think about it. Like, all of those people, they're left out too. Right. They don't have- They go to the happy hour with like water maybe being served. They're like, I don't know. I think there's a water fountain out in the hallway. So you can find that. So what became really clear was like, and then another stat that's out there that I find fascinating is 21 million people consider themselves to be in recovery from substance use disorder in this country. Like that's a lot of people in the workplace who don't drink, who you probably shouldn't be sending a bottle of wine to as a thank you gift. It's so well intended when you send that bottle, but it's making a massive assumption. And it's not just your employees, it's your customers too. So then I'd broaden and be like, what about the customers? So we started planning for the first sober happy hour at Dreamforce. I ended up leaving Salesforce for another opportunity at a startup that I went to next before the happy hour happened, but I got to be part of the planning committee leading up to it. They sold out within like days. And it was massively successful. And it was a mix of people who are sober, don't drink, just don't want to drink. Hey, guess what? Lots of people also just like want other options. Like I love seeing the mocktail menus because it's like, it's not just for people with substance use disorder. There's a wellness movement happening of people going like, alcohol's toxic, period. And I don't want to partake in it. So like, give me options, right? Like so much of this is just having options. I'm super excited about the space we're now in as like a culture that I feel like there's so many more people who are just choosing not to just because they feel better, not because they can't like me, but because they just choose something else. And that therefore also reduces the stigma of not drinking. It makes it more approachable for someone who is trying to get sober to feel safer in choosing the non-alcoholic drink. Did you come across conversations about people accessing their benefits, getting treatment, getting help, and their companies finding out? Because this is a a space I deal with a lot, and companies are doing a lot to try to convince their employees that they, they really don't know when they're, you know, who is utilizing the benefits, but employees are still terrified and it it all plays into this stigma piece. So glad you brought that up because that's exactly what I'm launching out to do now is to be in the space to help bring solutions to the marketplace because it is a huge gap in the marketplace right now. It's a huge gap. People don't trust EAP. I think the stat is like two to 5% use EAP. That is not enough. And the experience is often not great. It usually is like, here's a list of phone numbers to call. And you call and they're like, we're, we don't have any beds open or we're not accepting new patients or whatever it is. Like not a great user experience. So EAP is not working. People don't trust HR. They think their job's in jeopardy. They don't realize that they're protected by the American Disabilities Act. And if they don't yet self-identify as someone with substance use disorder, which is what's protected, but you're in the space of curiosity or like, I know I have this is a problem, but I don't know, like, is this a forever problem? Is this a temporary problem? How do I assess if I have a problem? Like, where do you start that conversation today? You have no idea where to go. So then you've got a slew of benefits that are like mental health focus, but not everyone with substance use disorder identifies as having also mental health. So there's an assumption being made there that like you would know to go to a mental health application that may or may not have a substance use disorder track, so to speak. So there's gaps. To me, there's like the user journey is is broken. and People don't know where to go. A lot of the mental health 
places are saying they have substance use and really what they're doing is giving you the name of a counselor. Or giving you the name or the number of your insurance card and saying, call them and see what they cover. I mean, that's not a solution. So 100%, the number of stories that I would hear from individuals who are like, I'm spending, hey, don't tell anyone, but I'm spending five hours a day calling treatment centers trying to find a place for my daughter because she's 16 and she needs inpatient, but I don't know where to go and I don't know how to assess what's good or not good. And I'm seeing stories about patient brokering happening with like bad actors in the space. And where are employees supposed to go for knowledge? HR doesn't know. And that's not a slam on HR, but like if you're an international company like Salesforce, how are you supposed to guide your employees to the right space in their community for care that's at the level that they need and is clinically backed care when you have people all over the world. Like it's just, it's kind of an impossible ask we're putting on what is usually a pretty small team. And oh, by the way, your employees aren't going to call HR because they're scared they're going to lose their jobs. So we need better solutions. And that's what I'm going to try to go out and build is that we need better solutions that are truly connected care and whole person care and patient voice care in substance use disorder as a standalone condition. And it feels like where this market was before when like hypertension, diabetes were all like jammed together. And then the market's like, hey, you know what? I think diabetes is big enough that it needs to be a standalone solution. And then we started offering things like, you know, yogurt in the workplace instead of potato chips or apple chips instead of Snickers. You know, like the workplace got involved on providing healthier eating options by changing what was offered in the vending machine. And I feel like the same is possible within the workplace when it comes to alcohol and offering different choices. Like how about we offer volunteering as a group activity versus another happy hour? How about we offer people leadership training on how to spot when someone has a problem versus just putting people on performance plans? We have to do better. The thing is like when they get sober, they're like the best producing employees and there's all sorts of data that supports that. Like we work really hard. We probably don't take enough time off. Like we need to take more time off. But like as someone who is, and I'm sure you relate to this, like it is a feeling of like I've gotten the second chance at life. I bring a ton more gratitude into the spaces I occupy for that chance. And like the data backs it. The data backs it. If you're someone in recovery, you actually do work harder. You do stay longer at companies. You do take fewer days off. It's like not a complicated solution either. It just really isn't. We just don't have the basics in place still. Like we've really disregarded this whole population for so long because we've just shamed it. We haven't recognized it as a chronic medical condition. Do you ever consult with people on how to start a sober force in their company? All the time. And this is what led to me now doing this, going like, okay, I got to build a company. But I do that all the time for really big companies, people who are sober, really big companies who come to me and say, I want to create what you created. How do I do this? And so, yes, so that is is part that I'm Oh, it's been happening. Yes. For like three years. And a lot of these have started and have been successful and are launched and are going. Are there any at any of the other big? So Cisco is someone I've been in regular contact with. And he actually, we just did a podcast. He's going to release that soon. So he's been spinning up and running sober recovery community there. Large advertising groups. Some of the other large companies you mentioned earlier have reached out. Hilton a while back had reached out. And again, it's all like unofficial because no one's like officially contracted with me. Although I will throw out that that is a service now that I can bring consulting services in to help do this because there is a lot of nuance in how we set it up that made it successful. There are things that maybe wouldn't feel obvious, like is it a private Slack channel or a public or like what do you use if you don't have Slack? And what if your people aren't in front of a computer? How do you reach them? Like there's a lot that goes into like building an appropriate and effective community depending on the workplace you're in. And I agree. I think that that is the fastest path to breaking down the stigma, raising awareness across the entire company, 
really shining a light for HR and benefits on, no, we're here and there's a lot of us. Here we are. Here it is. That's pretty tough to deny when you've got a public Slack channel filled with people who are sharing their day count. Totally. And, you know, I've heard people say who are like skeptical of is the market going to be willing to solve this problem who have said things like, well, the CFO just doesn't want those people at their workplace. And I'm like, but they are. But they are at the workplace. They're already there. And they're protected. They're a protected class with the American Disabilities Act. So you have to treat this better and differently. You need to have a solution in place. You can't just fire these individuals ethically, but legally you can't either. (laughs) Like, so I'm grateful to the Biden administration for all the work that they've put into this space and the funding they've put into this space. I do think COVID has brought the conversation more front and center than I've ever seen it before. I'm seeing it talked about a lot more. Like, what does it mean to have a recovery-friendly workplace? What does having a sober, safe environment look like? Because the benefit and the solutions in that regard is really like a, a lot to your point. It's, like, it's almost like a last step in the process. It's like, okay, now we need a benefit to solve this need. We need to change what's happening within the center of the companies for things like don't send a bottle of alcohol, have it be opt-in, either alcohol or food. Like what does someone want sent to their house? When you have a company kickoff, make sure you have a non-alcoholic option right there next to the alcoholic option. Have it clearly labeled. When you're on stage, don't talk about how we should all go drinking after or don't show up hungover tomorrow. Like there's just so many spaces in which can be easily changed and make a massive impact on the people who are trying to be sober or are sober or are thinking they have a problem, but like it's not that complicated. But it does require a lot of awareness and it requires a lot and it requires training. I mean, it does require a massive amount of education. Yeah. Yeah, it does. There are more and more interested people and we just need to continue this momentum. And, you know, with your experience and and what you're doing, it's amazing. And I'm super, super grateful for you. And seriously, I mean, that really, it's amazing what you did and what you accomplished and coming out and it's paving the way for many other people. And it's really important. So thank you so much for doing that. Really, really grateful. Where can people find you if they're interested in your consulting services or getting in touch with you? Find me on LinkedIn, Marin, M-A-R-I-N, Nelson, N-E-L-S-O-N. Just add me there. Send me a note. Yeah, I would be happy to connect. And thank you, Ashley, because you've been in the work far longer than I have. And I know it's not easy to show up and fight for what feels like the voiceless in the workplace that needs advocates fighting for them because they are there and they are suffering in silence. And we can do better. We can do better by our people. We need to do better. And everyone benefits when we do. And I trust that people are going to, it's going to start clicking in. I really do feel that way. Like we've done it with anxiety and depression in a massive way. We've made that conversation more approachable in the workforce, something that was heavily stigmatized before. I feel like that's a lot more acceptable to talk about now. And it didn't take that long for that shift to happen. Like it feels like it happened pretty fast. So I'm going to have faith that the same will happen with substance use disorder. To close this out, I think what I want people to remember is that we're not bad people trying to get good. We're sick people trying to get well. And if you can see us that way, there is hope. There is change. It is possible, but we need support. Yeah. Thank you for that. Awesome. Thank you. So good. Appreciate it. Thank you so much. Well, she's my friend now and forever. I saw that. (laughs) 
I saw kinship. There was times where I had to be like, all right, mm-hmm. enough with the giggle party. Mm-hmm, let's mm-hmm. get let's get back to the story mm-hmm. here because you're just having too good a time and cut it out. Cut it out. Oh, no, don't do the, the Dave Coulier yeah, from yeah. Full House. Yeah, That's was... me wearing off on you and it feels bad. bad. I wish you were the way that you were before. Before? Before you yeah, happened? Yeah, yeah. Before sorry. I ruined. I mean, you're sorry. <laughs> before you ruined. Everyone's sorry. I'm not impressionable. I've watched videos of myself from different times. Being younger, I can hear myself like talking like my friends. We just had little like words and little phrases we'd use. Our sense of humor became this kind of shared thing where we had this. I feel like I didn't do that with my friends as much as I did with like cultures. Like in the 90s, yeah, yeah, I was like a Raiders fan and I dressed as though I were Hispanic. So like it wasn't a person, it was just like a cultural thing. I would love to see, I think maybe we should try to populate for social media, you know, the different versions of David Bowie. Yeah. You know this? Yeah. I think yes. we should do the eras, the Ashley eras. I Oof. think we should have that as a little I'll try carousel. To find some. We're going to need to use the blur tool. You were naked in every picture. Is that what you're saying? I mean, not every picture, but <laughs> I was going through my 16th birthday the other day with some friends. We rented a limo to go to a monster truck show. I'm on board already. Right. So <laughs> the best part is like uh, there's me and like my drunk friends. And then there's my one normie friend from my previous private school who's like still finds me like mildly acceptable, I guess. Like mm-hmm. doesn't really see all the things. There's this picture of us in the limo. I'm drinking. I have a cigarette in my hand. I'm topless. And my girlfriend, my other girlfriends are topless. Like everybody, whatever, totally hammered. And then our one normie friend is sitting there fully clothed, just smiling for the picture. (laughs) And it's the best part of the photo because I'm just like, this poor girl is like, what the fuck? Because my friends gave me an eight ball for my birthday. Mm. That was my birthday present. And I mean, monster truck rally, limo, (laughs) you know. It was on and popping. It was the classiest it ever got, by the way. Sure. Did you stick your head out the roof like in big? Oh, well, on the way to the monster truck show. Sure. All limousine driver's job is to just say, stop sticking your head out of the top of the limousine, right? I cannot imagine what that experience was like for the driver. In today's world, not a chance. Not a chance. No He'd way. be like, not a fucking no. chance. That guy wouldn't get in the car with it with that I, if he had half a brain. Which obviously brings me directly to Back sober to force. The, you see the connection, right? Yes. Let's play okay. a game. Let's play a game called difficult transition. I need you to land this. Where are you going to take us from that? I'll land it. Okay. Let's oh, see. Don't you dare me. I'm daring you. Go. So. Marin, transition made, by the way. Because <laughs> <laughs> you just said her name. <laughs> That's it, huh? No. Wow. But, no, but I just want to point out that I can if I could. Okay. When we're talking about the history of like, Marin and I got sober very young. And so a lot of the things, a lot of the crazy, a lot of the acting out was very similar. And when she and I talk about particularly early sobriety, because when you get sober young, you think all your fun is over, your life is over. Oh my gosh, I'm never going to be fun again because you naturally associate fun with being in a limo and your top off. We very much relate to like early sobriety and learning how to have fun in sobriety. And so Marin and I 
off camera have had a lot of conversations about getting sober young, what that's like, and then transitioning to the next phases of our life and how our sobriety changes. And from the perspective of getting sober young and then bringing that into the workforce, in some ways, it's a unique opportunity that she had because she did get sober so young. So she was sober long enough when she got into a leadership position that she felt comfortable coming out with that, right? Had she been a year sober as a leader, she might not have felt comfortable. But because she had some serious time under her belt and was in leadership, she was willing and able to do that. And I found her because she created Soberforce at Salesforce. And I think I told her this too, just absolutely blown away. Love what she did. So impressive to me. Really, truly, really, really impressive. It is not an easy thing to do. And it's a movement that she's leading. And it's, I, I'm so grateful. I mean, to be able to have that kind of momentum be created where it's like 500 people and how much time? It was very In short five months that are just like, yeah, I'm going to be out about it and I'm going to, we're going to talk about it. That is such a huge lift and, and an amazing outcome. And she talks about the fact that the people who, I, I thought the people who were most out were going to be people with long-term sobriety. And she talks about the people being most out counting days. I was not expecting that. I think there's lots of potential reasons, or maybe it's just like, I want to mark a line in the sand that's saying like something is changing with me because maybe they also had a feeling of like, okay, people are starting to become aware right. of what's going on. <laughs> right. And so I want to make a clear line that says, no, no, I'm on something different now and look at my progress and back you know off. that kind of back off. Back off. I'm doing much better. Thank you. So something that Marin alluded to, but I want to make clear is that in HR language, if you say I'm struggling with addiction or alcohol. You are now a protected class. You can't drink on the job. But if you say that you're struggling with alcoholism, like if you come out with that, you are a protected class. If they don't know, then you're not protected. And so there is value to people in saying I'm struggling. I think a lot of people would think it would be the opposite, right? Like just conceal, conceal, conceal. And what they, what many people don't know is you are protected by the Americans with Disabilities Act if you identify as having a problem with addiction. Use that how you may. For some reason, what popped into my head is not on topic, but it's from the office where they're like, Michael, he's like me with Oscar. And he's like, I think it's time to declare bankruptcy. And he just walks out of the office and he goes, I declare <laughs> bankruptcy. <laughs> <laughs> I assume that's how you have to do it at work. Right? Yeah, yeah. You don't have to do that at okay, work. Okay, great, great. Don't do that. <laughs> I highly suggest back. not doing that at don't work. Don't do that. Don't. Mm -hmm. Okay, noted, mm -hmm. noted. Yeah, noted, yeah, thank yeah. You. Smaller Glad declaration. You. <laughs> I think a lot of people really do think that unless you are drunk at work and losing your job and whatever, that you don't have a problem. And when I talk to people who are in charge of benefits and at these huge companies, they, many of them don't believe that they have people who are struggling. It's infuriating because what it means is that there aren't as many resources being provided because they don't know that they exist. That's a stigma issue. It's an understanding, a knowledge issue, an education issue. There's so many people in the workforce who are struggling with over drinking. Even if they looked at moderation, you know, a moderation management program or any type of 
substance use or stress management, any type of help, I think it is a huge problem that we're not addressing. Yeah, 100% agree. And I think if people are wanting to start something similar, I would really encourage you to reach out to Marin to see you know, some of the best ways to go about doing that, because I think some of them may not be that obvious. But even if it's just like consulting in some way to talk about how to make your events and things more approachable, more whatever, that would be great. Because I think when we can get it out in the open in a workplace, if we can actually show what's happening, then to, to Ashley's point, then you can build more resources in and you don't have companies going, well, we don't need help with that because it doesn't happen to anybody. I think the more that groups like this can exist, the more that people can share their story out loud, the, the more help that gives to everybody who's still right in the thick of it and struggling and trying to figure this out. So I am appreciative for her for doing this. And I hope that it leads to a larger sort of movement when it comes to workplaces and maybe the way that we can talk about this kind of stuff. That would be my hope. Well, we're rooting for you this week, as we always are. Uh, I hope you have a wonderful week. Ashley, anything you want to leave the people with? Thank you so much for listening. Please share this podcast with somebody that needs to hear it. And if you get a chance, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. That is podcast currency. It helps us greatly. So if you are a listener and want to support us, that is how you can. We can also be reached at podcast at linerock.life. We'll see you next time. This podcast is sponsored by lionrock.life. Lionrock.life is a diverse and supportive recovery community offering weekly over 70 online peer support meetings, useful recovery information, and entertaining content. Whether you're newly sober, have many years in recovery, or you're recovering from something other than drugs and alcohol, we have space for you. Visit www.lionrock.life today and enter promo code COURAGE for one month of unlimited peer support meetings free. Find the joy in recovery at lionrock.life.